0: This morning we return to the book of Acts. Those of you who have been, or those of you who are visiting this morning, um, it's our normal practice to study books of the Bible, to just walk through them passage by passage. And uh, and so we continue to do that and this morning. Uh, several months ago, I don't know how many months ago now, but we uh, started studying the book of Acts. And uh, that was intentional because uh, I foresaw us as a church uh, beginning a a new stage of our life in 2014, and that is what's happening for us. It's a new beginning as we, uh, I don't want to say sever our ties with Green Lake, but as we loosen our ties uh, with the church that planted this church years ago. And uh, this is just a great book to remind us of what we're about. And what our mission is and what empowers that mission and what our hope is and, and all that stuff that we just need to hear again and again as a church. And so as we return to this book and this, uh, history of this young church that's growing, I just want to remind you that, you know, way back in chapter one, it began as a, as a young church and the church just being the collection of God's people, the followers of Jesus, the one who had died and then was raised to life and ascended to heaven. And, and the church began as just a people in waiting. They were waiting for the promised spirit. They didn't know what to do until, until they received that spirit. And Jesus said, just wait. Wait and that power will come upon you. And then, of course, the church became the church empowered, that was filled with His presence, that was emboldened to proclaim the risen and ascended Christ in the streets of ancient Jerusalem. And that's kind of where we've been the last couple chapters, as we've been in the streets of ancient Jerusalem as these followers of Christ, and the disciples in particular, just boldly proclaim Who Jesus is. Knowing that the authorities of the day, the authorities who had put Jesus on a cross and killed him, were still there. They were still listening. And yet this was a church empowered and emboldened. And then it became a church harassed. And then the last place we were was Stephen. Where the church suddenly became a church persecuted. A church killed. And that's where we find ourselves this morning as we start chapter 8. Now in chapter 8 there is a shift of sorts in the book of Acts and I want you to see that. I want you to see this shift that's coming because a church that has begun in Jerusalem and has primarily taken place up until this point on the streets of Jerusalem is now going to be a church on the move. A church that begins to emanate out from its center. And this is a shift that we will see really in the rest of the book. As the church continues to go further and further. As the rest of the book of Acts is going to take us there. And it's an important point uh, for us this morning. As we think about Acts chapter 8. Chapter 8, verses one through eight. If you don't own a copy of God's Word, we do have copies on the back table that we invite you to grab or just follow along in the bulletin. Listen as I read. And Saul, that is, following the stoning of Stephen, the death of Stephen, Saul approved his execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip. When they heard him, when they saw the signs that he did, for unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice came out of many who had them. And many who were paralyzed or lame were healed, so that there was so much joy in that city. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. I want to jump right into this passage and tell you that there is one truth that I want us to center our thoughts on this morning. Certainly not the only thing that we can take away from this passage, but it's the one thing that I want us to build everything upon And so just one point, kids. Get this down. You're off to a great start. It's this. Suffering always serves God's purposes. Suffering always serves God's purposes. The words pointless, senseless, Those are words that we often throw around in our lives when we just don't understand, when we just don't get it. Maybe those are words that came to your mind over the past week and a half. And yet as we gather this morning as the people of God, as those who submit ourselves to His Word and acknowledge that in here, in this Word is truth, That this God can be trusted. We who gather believing that, who confess the providence of God, this great doctrine that not a hair can fall from our heads without the will of our Father in heaven. Can we really ever say that something is pointless? Can we really ever say that something is senseless? Well, there's no doubt we may cry out, as many of us cried out, Lord, what are you doing? I don't understand. How long? We find those kinds of cries all throughout the Psalms. One of the reasons I love the Psalms is they just express the emotions that of our hearts, emotions that we feel so often in our lives. But suffering that happens in our lives and in the life here of God's church is never pointless. And that's, I think, one of the simple truths that we need to set our hearts again on this morning and just simply digest and let it ooze into who we are. I'm not excusing the scene that's happening here. Or any other example or instance of injustice in our world as a society, as a church, or in your individual lives and things that you have gone through. I mean, there's no doubt that when when we reread this passage in Acts chapter 8, what is happening to God's people is not pretty. I mean, God's people are being afflicted here. And I think it's easy for us, it's easy for me to read this account and to let the brevity of its its accounting kind of minimize what's going on. right? We've heard it, some of us have read this passage many, many times. But just, just stop for a second and think. Saul is ravaging the church. That's a harsh word. This is brutal cruelty for those who claim the name of Christ. People were being dragged out of the safety and security of their homes for no other reason than they had been spotted at the synagogue hearing the words, saying amen to what was being proclaimed and preached. And of course, a couple of weeks ago, we focused on the fact that this is not simply an ancient phenomenon, but this is something that's happening today, this morning, in our world. Not in this place, praise God, but all over the world. And so Hebrews 13.3, that great passage, remember those who are in prison as though you were in chains with them, is a great little side reminder as we come to Acts chapter 8 in these first few verses. There is a church that is being ravaged. Today, What began as mere hostility is now full-blown fear. One of the things that is not a mistake in this passage, as Luke mentions in verse 58 of the last chapter, he mentions the man Saul. Luke wants you to bank that name. He, he drops that name a couple times in verse 58. He drops it again in this passage because he wants you to just tuck it back there and remember. Because as we know, those of us who know the continuation of this story, we know that Saul will become Paul and that in doing so, he becomes one of God's greatest trophies of grace. And of the transforming power of the gospel and the power of the Holy Spirit. So just bank that, that Saul is mentioned here. We're not going to talk about him. We'll have to wait a few weeks to talk about him. But here this morning, as we focus on this truth, that suffering always serves God's purposes, we're not only reminded of that truth, but we are, in a sense, we get to see behind the curtain. Because what I want you to see in the beginning of chapter 8 is that the suffering that God's people experience here, not including the million little providences that God is weaving through these individual lives, of these individual families that are being dragged out of their homes and imprisoned, and, and what God is doing in all of those unique situations. No, God's people as a whole are suffering, and they are suffering for the mission. They are suffering... For the mission. And that's exactly what God intended to happen. And that's really the focus of this passage. I mean, the big picture is that God has allowed suffering to serve His purposes. The smaller point is that God is using suffering for the mission of His church, for the mission of His church. You see, in chapter 1, verse 8, if you go all the way back to the beginning of Acts, Jesus told his followers that they would be his witnesses in where? Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And now here, coincidentally, because the verse markers are not inspired, they're not from God, those were added much, much later, in case you didn't know that, but here in verses, that was 1 8. Here in 8 1, what's happening? Where are they being scattered to? The church of Jesus is being scattered to Judea and Samaria. Going back to Jesus' words, notice Jesus didn't say that, would you please be my witnesses in Judea and Samaria? Or I sure hope that you'll be my witnesses. Now what did he say? You will be my witnesses. And when that was first said, especially when Samaria was uttered, it was... Ooh, that is not part of my uh, presentation. Um, when Samaria was dropped, when that word was dropped... There is no doubt that there was some eyebrows raised. There is no doubt that there was some heads that would shake. And we'll get why to that's the case in just a moment. You know, in Acts chapter 8, as the church is scattered, that's what Luke says. That's a word he uses to describe. This isn't a strategic sending, right? The apostles didn't. Sit down and, and send people to specific places with specific commissions and specific callings. Now, this is a scattering. And scatterings to us, they seem chaotic. But this scattering is far from chaotic. Because God is allowing suffering to accomplish His purposes and to accomplish His mission. Now, could God have done this some other way? Absolutely. He's God. But in the mysterious will, in His mysterious providence, He chooses to do it this way. And as I said, when Samaria was dropped, maybe this was the only way that He was going to get His people to go to Samaria. right? We've all heard of the story, the good Samaritan. Maybe many of us in this new room know why that is such a, gut-wrenching story. Not just because of the compassion of a man towards a wounded and brutalized traveler, but because of who that man was. He was a Samaritan. And the Samaritans were the disdained half-breeds, we might call them, to the north. This was the region of Jews who believed in Yahweh and yet had long ago intermarried with Gentiles and therefore weren't pure. And there was disdain. There was animosity that had centered between the the Jews of Jerusalem and the Jews of Samaria for hundreds of years. And yet God takes his gospel carried on the lips of people like Philip to the center of the storm, to the center of Samaria. A little side application. Just as we think about this, as you think about your life, maybe there are people in your life that you are slow to move towards. We all have people in our lives that are hard to love, but maybe there are people in our lives that are particularly hard to love with the gospel, and we're slow to move towards them. And this passage is a reminder that God will have his way. God will have his way, and if he wants you to move towards those people, he will do it. Well, back to their passage, Stephen's death and the resulting fallout from Stephen's death serves as this really a propellant for the church. And this has so often been the pathway for the church. Tertullian, the ancient church father, wrote, Kill us, torture us, condemn us, grind us to dust. Your injustice is proof that we are innocent. The oftener we are mowed down by you, the more in number we grow. The blood of Christians is seed. And specifically here, as we think about God using suffering to serve his purposes, it is a wonderful reminder, and I love to be reminded of this fact, that what the evil one intended for evil, God used for good. And it began way back in the Old Testament, way back in that great story of Joseph. It obviously was present in the life of our Savior, as Roman authorities nailed him to a cross, and we have our modern-day equivalents of it. I was just reminded over Christmas of um, of the story of uh, Rachel Saint and Elizabeth Elliot. How many are familiar with Elizabeth Elliot, Jim Elliot, Nate Saint, Rachel Saint? Familiar with that story and the Alca Indians of Ecuador? If you're not familiar with that story, it is a great story to get familiar with. A great modern mission story that happened in the 50's as these five men impassioned and emboldened about the gospel flew to Ecuador to reach this Alca Indian tribe that had never not just heard the gospel they hadn't confronted civilization. And these men went to reach these Indians for Christ and they were all slaughtered. They were speared to death. They were speared to death by a godless people that were frankly scared of these white men who had flown in on this yellow plane. And what happened after that? What did the Lord use? How did the Lord work through that suffering? Well, what he did was he raised up Nate Saint who was the pilot of the plane. He raised up his sister, Rachel, and Elizabeth Elliot, who was the wife of Jim Elliot, one of the five missionaries that were speared and slaughtered. And those two women went into that very tribe, the tribe that killed their brother and their husband, and they lived with them. Less than ten years after the death, they lived with them They raised their kids with them, at least Elizabeth did in part. And what happened is that tribe came to Christ. That tribe came to the gospel so much so, and this gets back to why this was on my mind, that Steve Saint, the son of Nate Saint, now travels around the world, and he's traveled in the United States, with one of the men who speared his father, who now is the adopted grandfather of his children, the man who killed his father actually baptized his son after coming to Christ and becoming one of an elder, one of the elders in the tribe. A beautiful story of what looked like the end of a gospel witness. What looked like suffering that was going to crush Any hope of the gospel going in. And what did God do? God used that suffering for His purposes and specifically for the mission of the church to save that tribe. Suffering always serves God's purposes. God uses tragedy to serve His mission one of the significant things one of the other significant things that i want you to see from this passage is not just that overarching fact but i want you to notice who is going on the mission that's important it wasn't the apostles it was men like philip one of the seven but not an apostle one of the seven who were set apart chapters earlier Men weren't, men and women weren't fleeing Jerusalem in this persecution that they were feeling. They weren't fleeing as refugees, but they were fleeing as missionaries. The apostles weren't sending them with a commission. The gospel was just going with them. And the the apostles didn't have a strategy, and the apostles weren't accompanying them. God's people were just doing it. God's people were just on mission. And so the question that comes to us as we think about a passage like this is, does the Lord need to rattle us or has the Lord rattled us in order to put us on mission? Now I'm not saying that we're completely void of mission in this church, we're not. But what are the ways that we need to be stretched? Stretched? What has God done even in the recent suffering that we have experienced as a church? And we've experienced plenty of suffering as a church over these past years. What is God accomplishing in us? For His glory. For His mission. Through all that we've been experienced. Because it's not chaos. It's purposeful. Well, you may be asking, what, what is our, what, you're talking about mission, Nate, but what, what does your mission look like? Well, for Philip, it was simple. It was the proclamation of Christ. The proclamation of Christ accompanied by signs and wonders. And you say, Aha, ha ha, there it is. That's not fair. Philip had signs and wonders. We don't have signs and wonders. But I want to challenge you. We do have signs and wonders. And frankly, it wasn't just the signs. It was the Word. It was the Spirit. Yes, the signs were there given by God for the proclamation of Christ, specifically in this age, in this period, in the early church. But we have signs of our own. And no, I'm not going to go into a discussion of, of supernatural gifts. That's another discussion. What signs am I talking about? Well, let me just give you two signs that you have to accomplish the mission of Christ through the suffering that you've experienced. One is your perspective through sorrow. Even death. Even untimely death. Now this is something that can only come by God's grace. Something we've got to pray for and plead for because we all are so easily derailed of perspective when suffering hits. But that's a sign that God uses when His people have perspective. When Mike Parker can sit here this morning and say that God has not abandoned him, he doesn't understand, and we don't understand, and we grieve. But God has not abandoned him. But secondly, I think one of the great signs that we have is our love for one another. We introverts in this church, and there's a lot of us in here, we get freaked out when you start talking about mission. Because then the E word comes, evangelism. And it's like, oh, what are you asking me to do? I'm not comfortable doing that. We get all freaked out when we talk about mission, but we don't need to be freaked out when we talk about mission. There was an article that came uh, on one of the blogs that I frequent. It was written by a pastor. It was a great little article called Simple Evangelism in the Church. And I want to read you just a bit of the article, not the whole thing. But he quotes John 13, 35, and he says, Jesus said in John 13, By this all people will you know... Well, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. And he writes, As a freshman college student and as a self-declared atheist, I attended a campus Christian fellowship to fulfill a promise that I had made to a Christian friend. I had the intention of only going once. It was merely a duty to uphold my word, nothing more. But I went... And my life has never been the same. I walked into a room full of Christians and was struck by what I observed. Here was a diverse group from every walk of life. I scanned them and I labeled people in my mind. There's the jock, there's the geek, walking over by the door as a Boy Scout. But what struck me was that they were together. They weren't just together in the same word. They were together in every sense of the word. Even in my atheist mind, I knew what I was seeing They loved one another, and I had no categories for this. And so I kept returning to find out why they had love like this for one another. Over the course of the next few months, I found the answer, or more accurately, the answer found me. And then he concludes, he says, One of the best evangelism programs that you can start at your church is to pursue loving one another well. At some point, they will have to hear the gospel proclaimed from your lips or from the pulpit, but that strange love will set the table before them. Love through suffering. It's one of the signs that you carry. Yes, we have suffered, but it's been purposeful. Now, what are we going to do with it? One of the things we can do is love And going back to my comments at the beginning of the service, I think that we did a wonderful job yesterday. And I know I'm not including everyone. I don't mean to exclude some in this room. But those of you who were there yesterday did a wonderful job of loving one another. And you'll have to ask me offline when I'm out of this pulpit about my day yesterday that led into that pulpit. Because it seemed like the evil one was trying to do everything to get me rattled before I stepped in, into that church. And the only thing I can think about, and I told Anna this, the only thing I can think about is that that place must have been filled with unbelievers. And I think it was. I think there was a, a quite a number of people that Susan's life had impacted That hadn't come to the Lord. And as they heard the gospel, I hope, as they saw the gospel and the way that you loved one another and the way that you cared for one another, you were on mission. So I pray that God uses our suffering for His purposes, that we are purposeful and intentional about loving one another And the end result in this passage is of course, verse 8, there was much joy in the city. It's not the predictable storyline, we never like predictable endings, but the chapter starts off with this ravaging and this section ends with joy. And that's God's way from mourning to dancing, from ashes to beauty, light shining in darkness. This is God's way in the church and in all the individual lives represented here. Rest in the fact that suffering is used by God for his purposes. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your church. We thank you for this reminder from your word Lord, I confess, it's a, it's a truth that, that we know, many of us in this room, intellectually, and we can spout it off, but whether we can really digest it and keep it in perspective when we have those storms in our lives that rock our world, that's another whole thing together, and, and we just pray that Your Spirit would plant this root, plant this Word deeply in our hearts, that it would be rooted there. And Father, that we as a church, a little congregation of 100 folks that has been through so much in the past years, that we would be a church intentional about our love, knowing that that is a sign that we possess to proclaim the gospel and to proclaim Christ, but also that we'd be a church that is on mission, that looks for opportunity and divine appointments to proclaim and to love. Father, we thank you for the truth here. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.